Good evening, brothers and sisters. It's certainly a blessing and the mercy of the Lord that he allows us to help hold this conference together this time. Um, as you read, probably in the brochure, we are holding a virtual conference. And, you know, uh, I don't want to be one of those people that get caught up in terminology and splitting hairs on, on words. But, you know, sometimes they have a little bit of a problem with virtual. Because in my mind, virtual always kind of is the opposite of something real. And we thank the Lord for one thing. Yes, we are gathered in a so-called virtual format, an online conference. Yet the presence of the Lord is never limited to anything that in our minds could be a limitation, like over a phone line, over the internet, and we thank the Lord for that. He can meet us in this format, in a virtual way, quote-unquote, in a very real way. So we trust that he will lead us in his presence, even in this time. I would like to begin by reading some scriptures, and starting from the verses that are the theme for this conference. If you would turn to Zechariah chapter 9, I'm going to read two verses. Verse 9 and the following. It reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of, of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then if we would turn to the other portion, which is our theme verse, the other theme verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you know, the, the, the two verses that are part of our theme are the two last verses of these chapters. And however, I would like to read a couple of verses throughout the chapter before we read 57 and 58. So starting from verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then a little ahead in verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. I'm going to use another translation. Uh, or actually, most manuscripts, they read the following. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, let us also bear the image of the heavenly. Then in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And if you go a little ahead, still First Corinthians, I want to read one verse in, in chapter 16, and that is verse 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And from Romans chapter 7, we would like to read the two last verses of that chapter. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And finally, one verse from First John, First Epistle of the Apostle John, chapter 2. And verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Let's bow for a further word of prayer. Our Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be gathered in your name at your feet. And Lord, we once again confess that, yes, there is no limitation on your side. No format is beyond your power to meet us with your presence. So we entrust this time into your hands. Lord, our prayer is, would you meet us even this evening? Would you come and speak your living word, Lord? You know exactly what word we need to hear. And we pray that by the enabling and leading of your Holy Spirit, each one of us may hear that voice directly from you. Would you speak to us, Lord, that we may rise up to follow you? We commit this time into your hands. We pray for especially enabling, Lord, for uh, the one that speaks, for all those translating, Lord, and for all of us as we hear your word. Oh, how we need that enabling of your Holy Spirit. And how do we thank you? Because you're ready have given us the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that he may lead us into more of him. That is our prayer this night, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm assuming that all of you that are here in the stream in this night are acquainted with the theme of our conference. And I'll state it just for the record and because of the recording. The theme is Christ our coming king. And in my introductory session tonight, I would like to look at the two scriptures from when, from where the theme is extracted. One is Zechariah 9, and the other one, the two last verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So all we can do tonight, of course, is to glance over the scriptures, to take the bird's eye view of it. And my prayer is that as we do that, the Lord somehow would whet our appetite for more would open our hearts, open our ears, so that something would be stirred inside of us by his wonderful grace. So I would like to start posing a very simple question. What comes to your mind when you hear that expression, 
Christ, our coming King. Of course, you cannot answer to me, so uh, I'll just tell you what came to my mind when I first heard about it. And if you're anything like me, chances are good that probably, you know, maybe we, we think alike. I was very naturally led to think, first and foremost, on the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that, because grammatically speaking, that is what the, what the phrase conveys. Christ, our coming King. But isn't it very interesting that when you read Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is from where that phrase is extracted, the verse actually is an allusion, a reference, not to the second coming of the king, but to the first coming of the king, to the first advent of Christ. Of course, the next verse, which we also read, Zechariah 9, 10, speaks of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, somehow we find a very similar pattern. Because first and second coming of the Lord are presented in that wonderful chapter. So it's the longest chapter in any epistle in the New Testament, if I'm not mistaken. But first and second coming are presented intertwined together in a single picture. Actually, this is something that is not uncommon in the Bible. Uh, uh, mostly in prophetic scriptures, oftentimes you're going to find that first and second coming of the Lord, they are presented oftentimes in the same verse. You have an element there that points to his first advent, and another that points to the second advent. And in a very wonderful way, I think that, I don't know if the uh, organizers of the conference they were thinking on this or not, but wonderfully to me, this is the case in both of the verses that we have before us as the theme of this conference. First and second coming of the king presented to us as almost like a single picture or part of the same canvas, if you will. You have elements that speak of the first coming, elements that speak of the second. We would like to ask a question and explore that question this evening. Why is it that the Holy Spirit has chosen to so often present to us a unified, single picture of both comings? I cannot help but feel that there must be a reason for that. There must be something that is a key an important key, something of vital significance in our Christian life. So we would like, having said those things, to take a look at the two passages, which are the theme of our conference, Zechariah chapter 9, and the two last verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and try to explore those things in the light of these two scriptures. So starting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Of course, uh, I, I am sure that most of you are quite familiar with this. This verse is quoted in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. And they are quoted as being fulfilled at the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus. That's it, the last week of, before his crucifixion, uh, five days before his crucifixion, to be more precise. Our Lord Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the multitude is... Uh, is shouting, Hosanna, to the Son of David. Blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. So there is no question about that. 
the, the passage before us somehow is presented to us in the Gospels as being fulfilled when the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem, right at the verge of his death and resurrection. But when we ex- examine this wonderful verse, we see very clearly that there is more in the passage than simply the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus entering Jerusalem in that day. As a matter of fact, the more I think in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it seems that we have before us a wonderful sketch, if you will, an outline of the whole gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so we read, your king is coming unto you. By the way, let me just open this parenthesis. All I can do tonight is to go through a word, a couple of either words or sentence fragments in this verse and try to explore this fact. How do we see the sketch of the gospel of the Lord? Something that in scope, it transcends uh, Palm Sunday. There is no question that Palm Sunday is indeed what is fulfilling this verse, but there is more in this verse than simply the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It seems that this passage, it encompasses the, the totality of the work of salvation that Christ effected by his, de- by his death and resurrection. So here we see, if we go back to the fulfillment, our Lord Jesus entering into Jerusalem, we see the Lord standing at the threshold of his redeeming work for you and for me. He's about to go to Jerusalem, and he knows very well that five days from then, he's going to be offered exactly on Passover day. He's going to be offered as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, maybe some of you may are asking right now, where do we see uh, so the salvation that he's about to accomplish alluded in this verse? So let's go through a couple of words that we find in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that points to that. So the first word that I want to single out here, behold, your king is coming to you, coming to you. So uh, unfortunately, I am one of those that I cannot read scripture in its original language, very unfortunately. Thank the Lord, I can still rely on those that can. And gather help from them. So those who study Hebrew, they tell us that when you consider this phrase, your king is coming to you, that coming to you could be translated alternatively as your king is coming for your good. He's coming to accomplish something in your benefit, coming to your good. And right there, you already have an idea of the redeeming work that our Lord Jesus is about to accomplish by his death and resurrection. He's standing right there at the threshold of that. And you have that indication in that. Following, we read, he's just, in my translation. In other translations, he's righteous. And of course, we know that this is of tremendous importance when you think on the salvation that our Lord Jesus is about to accomplish. If he were not just and righteous, he wouldn't be able to die on the cross for you and for me. If he were a sinner, like I am, or like you are, he would die for his own sins. But here you have the king coming. He is just. He is righteous. And because of that, he is qualified 
to become the Lamb of God, to become the vicarious sacrifice, the perfect offering that will take away the sin of the world. That is the picture before us. I cannot help but feel that right here we find a correspondence somehow with the Mount of Transfiguration. So you remember that six months before this event, our Lord Jesus coming into Jerusalem, just six months before that, our Lord was on the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples. And on that occasion, he was transfigured. He was transformed. There was something that came out of him. And Moses and Elijah, they come down. But you remember, there is a voice that is heard from heaven in that occasion. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And that voice, that transfiguration, in many ways, it corresponds to this declaration. He is the righteous one. You have on the Mount of Transfiguration nothing less than a divine attestation of the righteousness, of the perfection of the beloved Son. And because of that, when he came down off that mountain, we read that he set his face towards Jerusalem. This is something that is quite a paradox. Because, as we know, on that mountain, he was talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. Some scholars, they believe and they suggest that most likely there is a conversation going on there like saying, Wow, Lord, here is Moses and Elijah. We know that both of those wonderful servants in the Old Testament, as any other wonderful servant, they're full of failures. None of them succeeded, so to speak, and none of us does. But here they are, talking to the Son of Man, to the Son of God, to the perfect one, to the one that the only human being ever in history that went through that experience He's being transformed. And in a way, you may think of that as the Lord being ready to be received back in heaven. After living a perfect life, after serving perfectly the will of the Father, he's ready to be received back. And paradoxically, he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes down down of that mountain. And according to the Gospel of Luke, you have that wonderful phrase, He set his face towards Jerusalem. And six months after that, we find the Lord Jesus finally at the gates of Jerusalem in that triumphal entry. But why did he set his face towards Jerusalem? Why is he about to enter there? To give his life for you and for me. This is the righteous one, the king of whom the father testified, my beloved son, the perfect one. And finally, he's here about to accomplish that work of salvation. There is another word that I would like to point out. We read the word humble. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just endowed with salvation. Humble. I'm going to jump to humble first and get back to endowed with salvation. Again, those wonderful scholars in the Hebrew language, they tell us that there is an alternative translation for humble which could be he's afflicted. It's something much stronger than humble. It is, in fact, the same word that you find in the description of the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 53. 
I'm going to read that because it's exactly the same word in, in, in Hebrew. It says in, in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, we read that surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That last word, afflicted, is precisely the same Hebrew word for humble. So it seems that in the picture that is being presented to us by Zechariah, and remember, it transcends the event of the Lord Jesus entering in Jerusalem. Certainly it was fulfilled there, but there is something much wider, much bigger in scope. Is the Lord Jesus at the threshold of his saving work for us. And he is the one that is already seen prophetically as the one that is going to be afflicted of God, that is going to suffer on that cross for you and for me. And then we go back to endowed with salvation. This is one that is one of perhaps the, the Hebrew scholars tells us is one of the hardest one to be translated in this passage. Because the literal translation here is not simply in the sense that he can affect salvation in our behalf, which is, of course, absolutely true. But there is, a, again, an alternative translation that suggests, or literally speaking, that the word here is that here, here comes your king. He is just and he is saved, which is a little strange. He is just, we understand that, but he's saved. Certainly it's easier for us to look at this as he's endowed with salvation. He was given the power to save. We understand that. But literally in Hebrew, the word there is, he is saved. If we go with that literal translation, how are we to understand that? And it seems to many commentators and scholars that the picture here is of the Lord Jesus in his resurrection. As the one that went into death and was saved by God. Actually, I need to read one psalm here. One of the Messianic Psalms, which is Psalm 22, is probably the most famous psalm on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, which, of course, you'll remember it begins with that utterance of the Lord on the cross. It's David, a thousand years before that, is prophetically making exactly that, offer, that, that utterance. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the whole psalm, or most of the psalm, is a description of the sufferings of Messiah. Now, when you get, it's, it's actually, let me be more precise, two-thirds of the psalm describe the suffering of the Messiah. But the last third of the psalm, there is a transition. From the sufferings of Messiah, the, the whole sentiment, the whole uh, theme of the, of the last third of that psalm is the resurrection of Messiah. And in that threshold, in that moment when the psalm is going to change subjects, I'm going to read these verses for you. Verse 20, Psalm 22, 20. Messiah is crying through David prophetically. He's saying, or David prophetically saying of what Messiah is going to experience, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. And then on verse 22, you have 
the change to resurrection. I will tell of you of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So here you have something that is quite nothing less than amazing and extremely remarkable in my estimation. Messiah crying, save me, deliver me. And it seems that is in exactly in that sense that we read in Zechariah that he's saved. In which sense the Lord Jesus was saved? You know, it's, I don't know how it sounds to you. To me, it sounds extremely counterintuitive. Because this is language very normal for our, all of us. As descendants of Adam, as by nature, that is something that belongs to us. We need salvation. We need deliverance because of our sins. But how are you to understand that the Lord Jesus is one that was saved? The perfect one, the just one, the righteous king. How come? How to understand that? Well, I think that if we just consider that what made deliverance necessary for him is very different from what makes deliverance or saving necessary for us. In our case, it's our sins. It's because we fall short of the glory of God. Because we are alienated from God, we need deliverance. We need a Savior. We need salvation. But how are you to understand that about him, the righteous one? Well, because on that cross, when he took upon him my penalty, the chastisement that brings us peace, when he did that, he went right into death in that assurance that the Father would save him. He took our condemnation. He took the, our penalty. And he took it right into death with that prayer, deliver me, save me. And on resurrection morn, the Lord Jesus was saved from death. He came, just as we sang, he rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. Thy king comes to thee. He is righteous. He is saved. He was saved, and in his salvation, in his resurrection, in his deliverance, we find our deliverance, we find our salvation. Thank the Lord for that. Finally, we read another phrase. He's riding a donkey. Now, you know that there is a contrast here. Back in those days, back in, in, the, in the Old Testament and, and way after that, you know that every powerful conqueror, when he was about to conquer something, he was never riding a donkey. He was riding a, a, a steed, a horse, a pure breed. He was coming in war, a, a conqueror. A, but our Lord Jesus, he is God's king. And what a different picture we have him here. We see him riding a donkey because he is not coming in war. He's coming as the prince of peace. And even as Isaiah says, let me read a verse for you from Isaiah 53. I'm going to use a different translation, a more literal translation, which is Darby. If I can find it. Oh, here it is. Darby, Darby tells, it translates verse 5 of Isaiah 53. I'm reading the second part of the verse. The chastisement of our peace. In more modern translations, you read the chastisement of our well-being. That's the New American. But a more literal translation, 
they captured that is the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed, healed. Why can he be the Prince of Peace? Why he can be the one coming in peace? Not on a, on a, on a horse for war, but on a donkey in humility and peace. Because he took upon himself the punishment, the chastisement for our peace. From here we go to the next verse, verse 10. And amazingly, you have a change. And I hope you realize this. Let me find here the verse. Zechariah 9, verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Right there you have the contrast. See, because he is the prince of peace, he will make that come to an end. The instrument of war. And the, and it continues, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And here you have something that can only be applied in its fullest sense to the second coming of the king. So again, this is my this is what I'm trying to explore as we consider these verses together. In the same passages, we have a unified picture of the first and the second coming of Messiah. And here you have it. His dominion will be from sea, from sea to sea. So we can say, in a sense, the king, he already came. Thank the Lord for that. And he accomplished perfectly the work of our, for our salvation. But we also can say the king is still coming. And this is, even for us today, is still something we are awaiting for. Well, having seen these double comings of the king in Zechariah, I would like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and try to explore the same idea there. So in many ways, as I meditated in this, I was amazed that there, is, there seems to me to be a, a, a most amazing parallel between the two passages. Again, in 1 Corinthians, we see very clear pic a picture that proeminently shows us the two comings of the Lord Jesus. Not only his second coming, but also his first coming. As you know, uh, and by the way, I'm going to encourage everyone, if you have an opportunity, I urge you to read the, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Even though our theme verses is concentrated on the last two, two, uh, uh, two verses of that chapter, actually, when we read the whole chapter, we get a much fuller picture. And we, it helps us to understand how Paul is concluding this wonderful chapter. But I hope you remember this. I'm just going to state it and trust that you're going to check it by yourself. This chapter is the great chapter of resurrection in Scripture. And Paul is dealing in a rather extensive way on this matter of resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And out of that resurrection, our own resurrection in Him. Okay, But as you read that chapter, it's not just a matter of the future resurrection that is in view, but even the coming of the Lord, the first coming, is right quite prominently in view. So that's why I felt that we should have read, as we did, 
the beginning of the chapter, because we have in this chapter as well a sketch of the gospel. Did you notice that? It's not just about the second coming of the Lord, not just about our future resurrection, but it's it all begins with the beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and he was buried, and he rose again according to Scripture. His death, his resurrection, and later we read of his parousia, of his return, of those who are in Christ, who fell asleep in Christ, coming with him in his coming, in his parousia. Just like in Zechariah, the triumph of the Lord is quite in view in the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. Actually, I miss saying that. One of those words that we read, the word saved, right, in in Zechariah chapter 9. Again, scholars of Hebrew, they tell us that another translation that is acceptable for that is that he was made victorious. So it doesn't matter what you put there. You can go with... He's endowed with salvation. He was saved in resurrection. He was made victorious. All of those seems to be different shades of meaning of the same fact, the triumph of the Lord. And when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, we see our Lord Jesus in his triumph. He rose victorious. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? That that is the cry because of the triumph of the Lord in his resurrection. Again, you see the king in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in verse 25, for instance, let me read it for you. We read not just of the king that is going to reign in the future, but even today. It says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So in an, I'm mentioning all these things again. Just to point out this, a most remarkable parallel between the two passages that constitute our theme, or the the theme verses for this conference. Now, let's take a step further. In 1 Corinthians 15, I feel that there is something quite significant, because When you read the whole chapter, and more particularly when we get to our theme verses, verses 57 and 58, we see that the chapter goes beyond presenting the initial gospel of the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection. It goes even beyond to the fact of his coming again in triumph, in victory, in the future. In other words, it's beyond his first and his second coming. The chapter additionally And very significantly, it elaborates, it dwells on the implications for our Christian life of the two comings of the King. And in a way, that is where my burden really is. Yes, he died on that cross for us. And we see that in both passages. Zechariah, 1 Corinthians. He rose again victorious. Thank the Lord. He's coming again. But the question is, What is the implication of all all those things to your Christian life, to my Christian life today? We live, of course, in the little while between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. What is the implication of the first coming of the Lord and of his second coming to the time that is called today? We would like to take a look to these things in a little more 
detail. But let me just start from verse 57, going back to the same verse that we have. Let me just go back here. Because I believe that this verse exactly emphasizes what is supposed to happen today in the little while before the first coming of the king and the second coming of the king. And it reads, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, maybe some of you are questioning, but isn't that referring to the victory that he gained for us over death and the assurance of our final resurrection in the future and the transformation of our body? Yes, that is all very true. And it's part of the context there. There is no question about it. But did you notice, well, that when he makes that sentence, the immediate context is a little different from the more distant future of his second coming. If we can read it again, in verse 56, which is the immediate context for verse 57, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And then he goes ahead and says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, that victory is ultimately over physical death and is the assurance of a resurrection. There is no, I'm not trying to deny that, not at all. But I'm just saying that from these verses, we clearly see that that victory, it transcends the final ultimate victory in the future. It applies to today. It is victory over death. It is victory over sin. It is victory even over the law. And that can only be applied to a victory that is present today. In other words, our wonderful verses, they're dealing of, okay, there is a wonderful gospel that is the result of his first coming. We have a wonderful hope that is his second coming. But what is the implication for us today? That seems to be the emphasis when we read these verses that are the theme for this conference. I guess another way to put this matter would be the following. The king has come, and the king is coming. That is clear in both passages. Two comings of the king. But the question to all of us should be, how does that affect our lives today? He has come, and he has won a wondrous salvation for all of us. Are we living in the good of that salvation? Are we living in the triumph, in the victory that is part of that salvation that he has accomplished? It's not just simply a matter that, yes, one day we will enjoy that victory. One day we will have victory over that. Yeah, it's true. I'm not trying to deny it. But the question should be, well, yes, one day our bodies will be transformed. It's there in the chapter. Again, please read it. One day our bodies will be transformed. But the question for us today is, are we being today conformed into his image? One day we will be in glory with him. Thank the Lord. It is absolutely true. It is there in the chapter. But the question for us today is, are we being today transformed from glory to glory into his image by the Lord, the Spirit. It is true. One day we have the hope of a future resurre bodily resurrection. True? 
But again, the question for us today is, do we live today in the power of his resurrection? One day we have the hope, the wonderful hope to be his eternal bride. But the question for us today, are we living today in union and communion with our Lord? Even as Paul says in the same epistle, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. This is not just something in the future. Are we living in the good of what he made possible, of what he won for us so dearly at the cross of Calvary? That is the question I feel is before all of us. But let me explore in a little more detail, going back to the theme verse as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me explore a little more this matter of victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I already mentioned, this seems to be something that transcends simply victory in the future over physical death. It includes that, no question, no doubts about that, but it transcends that. So, uh, how can we understand, how can we be even more assured that what, Paul's had, what Paul has in mind in the Scripture is more than simply our future victory in resurrection or at the coming of the Lord? How can we be assured that these verses are talking about our victory in Christ today? I feel there is another Scripture from Paul in the New Testament that is a most wonderful parallel passage to these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in our theme verses, I mean. And that is Romans, uh, actually chapter 7 and chapter 8 as a whole. They mirror in many ways the verses that we read. And I just, we read some of that, those verses at the beginning. I'd like to go back to them just to see uh, where is Paul coming from when he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having spoken about the sting of death being sin, and having spoken that this, the strength of sin is the law, then he declares that. Well, I think Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, they exactly mirror that theme. You know that Romans chapter 7, and again, please bear with me. All I can do here is to point to those things without going into detail to them. But hopefully this can whet our appetite for more from the Lord. But if you read, and, and I trust that most of you are quite familiar with Romans chapter 7. We know that chapter 7 of Romans is about our deliverance from the law. And Paul begins stating that, that we are dead to the law. Through the death of our Lord Jesus, we have died to the law. But then amazingly, he goes on and he explains his own experience in that most famous portion of Scripture. When Paul is saying that, essentially, I'm trying to please God, I'm trying to do His will, and I discover that the good that I want to do, I cannot do. In other words, you have a picture of someone that is still li living under the law. Is still living under the principle of, I have to try to do my best to obey the Lord on my own strength. So there is nothing wrong with the law, as he himself states in that chapter, right? It's not that the law is wrong, but to live under the principle of the law, there is a problem there. Because to live under the principle of the law implies that 
You are trying on your strength to obey the Lord. You are trying in your capacity to please him. And the result is invariably the same result as Paul experienced. The more I try to do good, the more I realize that there is something in me that will not do it. It actually reminds us of the experience of the children of Israel, doesn't it? When they received the Ten Commandments, you remember. And Moses, they heard the Ten Commandments from the Lord himself, from the mountain. And at the end, when Moses is before them, talking to them, remember what they say? They say, everything the Lord said, we will do. Yes, we will obey him. And you remember what happens just 40 days after. <laughs> they broke like half, half the, of the Ten Commandments. At least three of them broke. Now, are we any better than them? <laughs> of course not. And Paul is there in Romans chapter 7, testifying exactly of the same thing. If we live under the principle of the law, if we try to please the Lord through our own energy, what is the result? Oh, sin, failure. And then at the end of that passage, you remember at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul makes that cry, that cry of desper desperation. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free of the body of this death? Let me just stop for a second. I hope you're realizing the parallel here between Romans 7 and our theme verses. Because our theme verses are talking about the deliverance, victory over death, sin, and the law. And you have all those elements in chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And let's see if you hear an echo here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can you see the parallel? What is that victory that Paul is talking about? Certainly, here in Romans chapter 7, he's not talking just about a future victory in resurrection, even though that is not excluded for sure. But he's talking about a victory that is given to us today because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. In him, in his person given to us, we experience what we can never produce by the best efforts that we can ever muster together to please God. But in his blessed person given to us, oh, deliverance from death, from sin, from the law. How do you call that? Victory. Thanks to God that gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, then you come to the next verses. It's kind of unfortunate that Romans 7 is broken from Romans 8 into two different chapters. You know that in the original there is no chapter, right? And unfortunately, oftentimes, when we have these breakages in chapter, it's almost as if we reset our minds at the end of one chapter. Say, okay, here, here comes something new, right? So let me just reset my mind and go to a new theme. But actually, there is... Just a continuation here. Therefore, there is not, therefore is exactly that key word here. Because of everything that I'm talking about, this is the conclusion. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some scholars now of Greek, let's change the language. 
they tells us that there is a very interesting meaning from condemnation. There are two meanings, actually, for condemnation. Condemnation, apparently, in the days of Paul, it was used sometimes in a more judicial sense, in the sense of what a verdict, that is the outcome of a court session. So a person could be condemned as the result, as the verdict of a, a judgment. But there is, that's a, a judicial sense of the word condemnation. But there is another sense for condemnation that was common use in those days. And it could be translated as lack of strength. So this verse, it could be translated, and it's, it seems very clearly that it's probably the meaning that makes the most sense by the context here. Therefore, there is now no more lack of strength for those who are in Christ Jesus. What did Paul describe in Romans 7? Oh, I'm trying to do good, but I discover I cannot do it. I'm trying to please God, and I discover that there is something in me that is always deviant, is always going down the tubes, is always sinning. How do you describe that? Lack of strength. Actually, someone suggested that death and lack of strength They're just, you know, (laughs) death could be uh, uh, defined as an extreme lack of strength. It doesn't get more extreme than that. Once you're dead, you know that you're unable to do anything. That's it. Then you understand why Paul is saying, who will deliver me from the body of this death? From this death that prevents me from pleasing God, that prevents me from doing his will. Who? Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. And here you have the result. Therefore, now there is no more lack of strength for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And this is very simple. The person of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus He'll he'll effect in you and in me the law of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Thank to God. It's not that the Lord, you see, it's not something different or apart from the Lord Jesus. It's just the Holy Spirit taking that finished work, the outcome of the first coming of the Lord Jesus, if you will, and he makes it real in your experience and in mine. How can we call that? victory. That is the thing verse that is before us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to point two more things in connection to our verse. The first thing, and thank the Lord for that, this victory is not something that we have to conquer, that we have to do something and is Uh, given to us as a reward from our efforts, is the opposite. The picture is Romans 7 and Romans 8. Here you have Paul trying to do all sorts of things, trying his best to please the Lord, and just discovering, I'm unable. There is lack of strength in me. That is the nature of who I am in myself. Oh, but in Christ Jesus, oh, there is no more lack of strength for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Spirit has made it real now in my life. How is that victory experienced by Paul? Through his effort? It's the opposite. 
it's given to him. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 15, again in our theme verse, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is given to you by the pure grace of God. I reckon that there seems to be, in many believers, myself included, a tendency to believe that, well, yes, our initial salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, our justification, if you will, those are things that are given to us by the grace of God. But when it comes to victory over sin, now I have to do something. Now it's up to me to kind of, you know, find something in myself and strive. Oh, brothers and sisters, the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus, the wonderful implication of his first coming, let me put it that way, is that by grace, you're not only justified, you're not only delivered from your sins, but by pure grace, the Lord gives you victory over sin. The Lord causes us to experience that there is no more lack of strength. There is now the law of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And in that law, there is liberty. There is victory. Thank God for that. Well, just want to mention a couple of other, th other things uh, as, as we approach the end of this session. I want to go to the next verse in 1 Corinthians chapter, the second theme verse, which is verse 58. And again, we read, if I can find it, we read the following. Let me read it together with verse 57, because again, we cannot break this apart, as we will see. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In a way, this last verse of the chapter is one of the great therefores in Scripture. And we have several of them. We already read a tremendous therefore right there in Romans chapter 8. Therefore. Because the Lord Jesus was given to us. This is another therefore that is just, is just a mirror of that therefore. Because the Lord had, because God has given us the victory in the person of the Lord Jesus. Because of that, on the basis of that, therefore, we are going to respond in a certain way. And that is what this last verse is all about. How are we going to respond to the fact that our king already came? with a tremendous gospel. In that gospel, we find not only the forgiveness of our sins, we find victory. We, we find a way to live that pleases the Father is the life of Christ in us. Therefore, what are we supposed to do? How are we going to respond to these things? And our verse tells us exactly that. Therefore, my beloved brethren, three things. I hope you notice this. Number one, be steadfast. Number two, be movable. Number three, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I would like to point one thing out as we consider these three aspects of our response, if you will. Be steadfast. Quite often in the New Testament, you're going to find that the word steadfast or the word be firm, which is essentially a synonym in, in Greek, right? 
they are paired in the same verse, at least in five occasions in the New Testament, with faith. So, even in our in our chap in, in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, a couple of verses later, as we read at the beginning, Paul is going to make a point. He's going to use not the word steadfast, it's a different word even in Greek, but it's in a way a synonym. And I'm reading again this verse for you, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. And this is the word, faith, is the word that is spared oftentimes in the New Testament, not only here in 1 Corinthians 16, but at least five times. It's paired with the idea of being steadfast. Are we supposed to be, we are supposed to be steadfast, but steadfast or firm in what? In your faith in the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the response, or let me put it this way, the proper response to the fact that God has given us the victory in the blessed person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The proper response to that is being firm in the faith. We stay firm in what the Lord has done for us. And we do that in faith. That is the response. Faith is what appropriates what the Lord has provided for us. Faith is what, as the author to the Hebrews says, it substantiates those things that, that are unseen that God has given us, and it makes, us re- it makes it real in our experience. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in the faith. I believe it's implied as the response to what the Lord has provided for us in his wonderful finished work. But then you have the second word, be immovable. Another picture comes to my mind here. When I, when I see that word immovable, well, it means what it says. <laughs> you're not moving, you're staying, you're holding your ground. But there is a New Testament term that comes to my mind when I read this word. We abide in Christ. Be immovable. You see that abide seems to be a pictorial word describing the idea of not moving, staying there. You see, there is a difference between visiting someone, right? And we visit one another and you go to someone's house. Oh, this is so nice, right? You enjoy a time with a person. But after the visit is concluded, you know, an hour or two, whatever it is, you go back. The picture here seems quite different. Be immovable. Abide in the Lord Jesus. It's not just a matter of abiding the victory as if it is something in itself. No, abide in Christ because that victory was given to you in the person of the Lord Jesus. What is our response? What is the therefore there then? We abide in the Lord. Be immovable. And finally, you have the idea of the reason why we are being steadfast, the reason why we're being immovable, knowing that in the Lord, I'm sorry, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The picture that comes to me here, reminded of a verse in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that says that we are constrained by the love of Christ. And now, because he loved us so, We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one that died and rose again for us. 
That is the implication. That is the response to this wondrous gospel, to this wondrous coming of the king. And also, as we await the second coming, how do we respond? We abound in the work of the Lord. We live no longer for ourselves. We live for the one that died for us. We live for our king. We learn how to seek first the kingdom, its righteousness. The proper response to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, to the two comings of the king. I want to to just mention, as we conclude again, an example that we have in Scripture. I think there is something that mirrors quite naturally these three aspects that you find in the last verse of the chapter. Being steadfast in faith, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. And that is something from the life of Enoch, right there in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 5. As you know, Enoch is one of those seminal types in Scripture of rapture, of the coming of the Lord. Because we read about him that he was taken up. I'm going to read for you Genesis 5. And I trust this is a familiar passage, but for those of you that want to follow it, uh, or open your Bible, Genesis 5, verse, starting from verse 21. Enoch li- lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. A seminal, a, 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 it's probably the first type in Scripture, or the first picture that we have in the Bible of the coming of the Lord and a rapture are being taken by him. But when you look at the behind the reasons, why did Enoch, among all those that feared the Lord, and there were several of them, it was a very corrupt age in which he lived, and yet there were others that also they were invoking or calling upon the name of the Lord. What? Why exactly Enoch is this one that is taken up Well, we have a couple of passages in the New Testament that gives us an indication about that. Let me read the first one. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. By faith. My beloved brethren, be steadfast. Remain on your faith as we await the second coming of the king. What is that secret? What is that element that should be present in all of us as we are awaiting his second coming? Faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Be steadfast in faith. And then we know that in the explanation of Genesis, or the comment of Genesis chapter 5, The reason that is given to us for him being taken up is because he walked with God. He received that revelation that God would send judgment. You know, the the name Methuselah is the way he named his son. It means that when he is taken, it will come. 
And we know that Methuselah, if you just do the math, is a simple one. Just go through the chapter. Do the math. The year that Methuselah died, the flood came. And Enoch had received that revelation. The Lord will come in judgment. But as soon as he received that revelation, the Bible tells us two things. He had a son. He names it Methuselah because he believed the revelation he received. And then the second thing, he walked with God. He made it his business to live in fellowship with the Lord. He made it his business to live not in an occasional walk with the Lord, but habitual. That is what is implied there. Habitual walk with the Lord. Fellowship with him. If you want to turn from the New Testament, he made it his business to abide in Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be immovable. Abide in the Lord. That is the response, brothers and sisters. For us who live in the little while in between the first and the second coming, be immovable. Abide in Christ. Walk with the Lord. Make it your business to live in the good of what your Lord Jesus won for you, even union and communion. And finally, we read in Jude about Enoch, the following verses. It was also, this is Jude chapter, Jude uh, verse 14, only a single chapter, so here it goes. It was also about this man that Enoch in the, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Once Enoch received that revelation, and by faith he believed in it, he stood in faith, and he made it his business to walk with God, to live abiding in Christ, if you will. He became a witness of the Lord. He became one that would serve the Lord in his generation as he waited. The, I'm putting, quote, unquote, the coming of the Lord. He came in judgment, and it is a type of his second coming. But he made it his business to live serving the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I feel that Enoch is a wonderful illustration of these principles. And as we conclude, let's just recap a couple of things. Thank the Lord our King has already come. And by his wonderful grace, he came for us. He's the one, thy King comes unto you. He came for your good. He came bringing salvation. And by his finished work, oh, what a salvation we have. Oh, what a victory we have in the, in the Lord Jesus. Something that transcends the forgiveness of our sins. Even speaks of our victory today over sin. Thank the Lord for that. But our King is also coming. We are waiting for his second coming. What are we to do, brothers and sisters? I'm going to read again the verse we read at the beginning as we close. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 28, now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 
Isn't it interesting? Because John here is talking about the second coming of the Lord. But how are we to be prepared for that second coming? We live in the good of the first coming. We abide in Him. We remain in the Lord. We become immovable in Christ, in that victory that we have in His blessed person. So, brothers and sisters, may the Lord be merciful to us. Even today, of course, I, I don't need to tell you the challenging times that we're living in. Just the fact that you're looking at me through a screen immediately reminds you of the challenge, right? Of course. Very challenging days. Is the pandemic, is the de deterioration of morality, of the politics, is, woof, what a mess. What a challenge. Brothers and sisters, we thank the Lord because none of these things can touch a bit, a yoda of that victory that is yours in Christ. If we only stand steadfast in the faith, immovable in Christ, always abounding in his work, may the Lord be merciful to us. May we be found by his grace as those that in this little while abide in Christ. So at his coming, we do not need to move away ashamed. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, indeed, as we consider these things, we marvel at your grace, at your love for us. Indeed, Lord Jesus, you are our king, and you already came bringing salvation. You came unto us. You came as the righteous one, as the victorious one, as the one that came in humility. And what a salvation we received in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because today is not just that we have a salvation that is in the past, but today we can testify that we have even victory, a present victory in you. Oh, for grace, Lord, that our eyes may be open to see you afresh, to see your person as the victorious one and the victory that we have in you. Causes, Lord, as we behold you, yes, to live in that glorious liberty that is in you in that glorious strength that is in Christ Jesus. Cause us, Lord, to be those that are immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord, even as we wait for your second coming, we pray, Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.